0: That's wise. W i s e. dot
1: com. Wise. dot com. W. E. B. Du Bois says that the most difficult social problem in the matter of Negro health is the peculiar attitude of the nation toward the well-being of the race. There have been few other cases in the history of civilized peoples where human suffering has been viewed with such peculiar indifference.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an important episode. It it is about coronavirus, but it's also about something much bigger much deeper in our society. The coronavirus is fitting into, taking advantage of, exacerbating. Um, A few weeks ago, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released data showing that 30% of COVID-19 patients are African-American, even though African-Americans make up only around 13% of the population. And if you look at fatality numbers, they're even worse. In Michigan, uh, Black folks represent 14% of the population and 40% of the COVID-19 deaths. In Georgia, 16% of the population and 50% of the deaths. Which is why I wanted to have Dr. David Williams on the show today. He is a professor of public health and chair of the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, He's also a professor of African American Studies and Sociology at Harvard. He has been ranked as one of the top 10 most cited social scientists in the world. Thomson Reuters ranked him as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. He's been doing extraordinary work on race and health disparities for many, many years. And I wanted to do this conversation in a very particular way. Coronavirus didn't come into a vacuum. It came into a society with inequities and comorbidities and health inequalities that was already built. And so the first half of this conversation is about race and health. Why does racial health inequality look like it does? Why did it look like this three months ago, four months ago? What was the context that coronavirus came into? And then what can that tell us about why this disease has been so much more deadly for the Black community? As always, my email is as box.com. Here is Dr. David Williams. Dr. David Williams, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here with you today.
2: So, I've heard you say that you've been on a twenty year journey to understand why race matters to health. Tell me about that journey.
1: Yes, so I am a sociologist uh, by training my my uh, doctoral degree was in sociology and I had studied public health and religion before that. And I would say that I focused in my training on social factors that affected health. and I knew that there were racial, ethnic, inequities in health but most people thought that racial ethnic inequities in health was simply a function of racial differences in socioeconomic status income education occupational status and wealth and i kind of bought in initially to that conventional wisdom that if we looked for example at african americans and whites at the same level of income and education race wouldn't matter and What happened when we began to do this empirically, we found that at every level of income and education, there was still a race effect, so that income and education predicted differences in health for African-Americans. It predicted differences in health for whites. But at every level of income and education, African-Americans still had worse health than whites. And, and, And that said, okay, if I've taken income and education into account and there still is something else left, what is it? And there had been multiple researchers, particularly uh, persons of color, who had written about racism and racism playing a role in affecting the health of socially stigmatized racial groups. But there wasn't much hard scientific evidence it it was an assertion that was made that racism would play a role but what exactly the mechanisms were what the processes were how do we measure them how do we actually document and verify that racism plays a role we were still in the very early stages of of thinking about racism and and i thought that really more work needed to be done to quantify, to to describe in detail the ways in which racism might be operative, and to actually study it empirically using the standard scientific method to document a role of racism. So that's kind of, of where I started down this path of moving beyond income and education and thinking, what else? Uh, might matter profoundly uh, for the health of disadvantaged populations.
2: Let's do a bit of that journey here because I think it's actually important to begin to rule out or explain why one rules out some of the income and education pathways before you move into the the, the question of racism and how and how we measure it and, and and why we might think it matters. One of the striking findings that you've talked about is that at every single education level, whites live longer than Blacks. There's a 3.5-year advantage for white high school dropouts over Black high school dropouts. But the one that I think is really striking, even more than that, is there is a 4.2-year advantage for white college graduates over Black college graduates. What does that tell us, and why do you think it rises as you go up the education attainment scale?
1: One of the things we know is is that there are probably multiple factors contributing to that pattern. First of all, to use a a fancy scientific term, uh, all the indicators of of economic status are not equivalent across race. What we mean by that is that if, if we think of education and you look at national data for the Census Bureau in the United States and you look at the average earnings for a given level of education, the average earnings for a given level of education varies by race. A, a college educated white person on average in the United States earns more than a college educated African American. Now keep in mind a college educated African American earns much more than an African American who has just finished high school. So there is the they do receive a benefit but they're not equivalent. Uh, another ways in which economic status is not equivalent across race has to do with with income. And when we think of income, we think of its purchasing power. We think of how much goods and services we can buy at a given level of income, with a given amount of income. And what research has consistently shown is that the cost of goods and services are higher in the places where uh, poor people and disadvantaged racial and ethnic minorities live than in more middle-class areas. The price of rent per square foot is higher in the inner city. The cost of of groceries is often higher in in central city areas than in suburban communities. And the the cost of insurance uh, is striking. I'll I'll give you one example, a personal example uh, for me. When my family and I moved um, back in 2006 uh, from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked at the University of Michigan to start a faculty appointment here at Harvard University, for our first year in, in the greater Boston a- area, we lived in a lovely new luxury suite of apartments that had, had been built, was newly built. My car was perfectly safe. It was secured in a, in a locked garage at night, and I paid a certain level of of insurance, uh, auto insurance for that car. Um, after a year of, of living uh, in, in that apartment complex, and uh, my wife was busy uh, shopping for homes where we would have a permanent home, we finally bought a house in Newton, Massachusetts, a, a suburb of, of Boston. I expected that my rent, my, not my rent, my um, auto insurance costs would have gone down from living at a Dorchester, Massachusetts address to a Newton, Massachusetts address. I was surprised when I contacted my insurance company and told them my new address, that my insurance, auto insurance fell by 42%. So this is the same driver with the same car, was located in a very secure parking structure, but I had changed geographic space. I had moved from one zip code to another, and I had a large drop in the cost of my auto insurance. It's just one example that research shows across a broad range of domains. The poor pay more and disadvantaged racial ethnic minorities pay more. And so that when we look at income levels, a a dollar in the hands of an African-American person does not buy as much on average in the United States as a dollar in the hand of a white person. So that's another mechanism that would contribute to the fact that we still see differences in health at the same levels of income and education. A third mechanism that's also important uh, to keep in mind is that if we look at an African-American and a white person today who are both college educated, their life experiences may not have been the same uh, across their entire life course. And one of the things we've learned from research is that our body keeps a record of all the exposures we've had. So, for example, the average college-educated African-American compared to the average college-educated white person, the African-American is more likely to have experienced poverty in, in childhood, more likely to have been born low birth weight, more likely to have had higher levels of exposure to adversity while growing up. And all of these negative Stressful experiences take a physiological toll on the body and that lead to differences in health. So health is affected by the sum total of what you've experienced over your entire life course and not just what your current social circumstances are. I want to give you one example that that kind of exquisitely demonstrated that. There was a study published years ago that looked at um, uh, physicians all-white cohort, um, late 1950s, early 1960s, graduating from Johns Hopkins University. And physicians, all African-American, at about the same time, graduating uh, from a Harry Medical School, uh, uh, African-American medical school in the South. And so they're all physicians. 25 years later, the African-American physicians had rates of high blood pressure and diabetes that was twice that of the white physicians and had high rates of heart disease as well. So again, you would say they're all medical doctors practicing in the United States, you have exquisitely controlled on social class, yet we found marked differences in their health 25 years later.
2: So why? I mean, and let me ask this question in a in a more sharp way, something that is a common argument in this conversation at this juncture is to say, well, that must then reflect personal choice. Maybe they eat an unhealthy diet or culture, right? Um, Maybe they smoke more. So when you look into that data, why do you see that difference?
1: That specific study controlled, not whether it controlled comprehensively, but it controlled for many of those kinds of risk factors and those patterns still existed. What we know is that, of course, health, is affected in part by the choices we made. There's no question that that is true. But when we look at populations and we look at differences in health, it's not simply the choices that individuals make that matter. And even more importantly, the choices that people are able to make are linked to the choices that they have. And some Americans live in places, for example, uh, that are called food deserts. Uh, those are places where the supermarkets are, are often uh, full service supermarkets are non-existent. And the smaller stores and, and corner stores that, that sell goods and services don't have fresh fruits and vegetables, don't have um, healthy food. So here is an individual who may want better choices in terms of nutrition, but it simply don't exist. Or some Americans live in neighborhoods where it is so dangerous that a mother doesn't let her children go outside to play, and and then they may end up with a higher risk of asthma, from greater time indoors or or the the mother herself is not able to go and safely exercise in her neighborhood because of the absence of 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 safe walking paths and and playgrounds so i think there are constraints on individual choice and we have to pay attention to the limits that that individuals have linked to their locations linked to to where they are and and the the constraints that they encounter in terms of how free is their choice to do everything and that for good health that they would like to do?
2: But but I want to stay on that example of the doctors because I think it's important. It it, it seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that it is less likely that. Somebody who has a medical degree and is a is a doctor is going to be forced to live in an area that is a food desert is going to be forced to live in an area with much higher levels of air pollution um, That does happen at the population level as you're saying, but but do you believe that that is the the outcome at that level, or I know you've done research on things like the weathering effect where it's sort of uh, uh, I will mangle this in the retelling, but sort of an accumulation of of stress and sort of like <laughs> racism, essentially, um, that is building up in in people's experience of the world and their biochemical reaction to the world. I mean, what do you think accounts, once you've controlled for so much of socioeconomic class and education, for the differences in, you know, among medical doctors?
1: I, I think there are two factors. Factor number one is that on average, research shows this to be true nationally in, in census data, that you look at African-Americans with the same level of income African-Americans are more likely to live in neighborhoods that are lower in quality and amenities than whites with, with a similar level of income. Part of that is linked to the fact that African-Americans often feel unwelcome in certain neighborhood contexts. But all, the other factor is that even at the same level of income, there are stark racial differences in wealth. So that uh, two persons with the same level of income may not have the same economic resources or the economic reserves or economic assets or uh, and savings to purchase uh, houses uh, of similar quality so so one is uh, I think there's a the possibility that although uh, middle class African Americans are uh, on average living in better neighborhoods than poor African Americans they might may not be living in neighborhoods that are equivalent to their peers who are similar in income, so that's one factor the other factor is the stress factor and the accumulation of stress in residential environments, in work environments, over an individual's entire life course. And we we now have good scientific data that what happens, we we have done uh, some research of this kind, looking at what we call early childhood adversities and the negative stressful experiences that individuals have Before the age of 12, that predicts in one study that we did looking at 24 biomarkers of physiological function across seven physiological systems. Those experiences of early life predicts biological dysregulation among persons aged in them from the mid thirties to the mid eighties. So that's what I mean when I say that our bodies keep a record of all the exposures that we have and they accumulate to affect health even when our individual circumstances might have improved.
2: Something you said there is really important, I think, and I wanna come back to it, which is that when we control for something like education or income, we are often controlling for much more than we realize and that across races we may not be controlling for the same thing. So I think that when we control for something like education, when you say you're looking at college graduates, you think just what you're controlling for is you got a college diploma, it can take that onto the job market and that network and those connections and so on. But we know that going to college is very heritable. We know that you're much more likely to go if your parents went, if you grew up in a richer home. And that seems much truer in white communities where just more people went to college and the communities were richer overall. So when you control for something like college among whites, you may be capturing a lot more data about what condition they grew up in than when you control for college among African-Americans. And the same is true for current incomes and, and other things. Um, I'm curious how much you think that speaks into it and, and how you think that should make us look at these studies that are controlling for things, but maybe controlling for more than um, a quick read of them would actually suggest.
1: That's an insightful point, and you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, I think there's recognition among researchers today that there are limitations to these very crude measures of income and education that we use. So, for example, we, we haven't talked about the fact that also not all colleges are created equal uh, in the United States, that, that, that some colleges ha- have a more, more rigorous program and graduating from that uni- university gives you access to, to greater opportunities and even higher salaries than a college degree from, from another university university. And most of the health studies that have taken measures of education into account uh, do not have markers of the quality of that education. And and we do think that that could be a factor that, that makes a contribution to the patterns that we see.
2: So something that you have done in particular is you have created a series of questionnaires to try to measure the way people experience different kinds of racism in their life, and then try to see what that does and doesn't predict. Can you walk us through those questionnaires and the thinking behind them and and how they differ and what you were trying to capture?
1: I, I would give the larger context that I was interested, even in my graduate work study, In research on stress and health, Uh, I worked with a a researcher who had done seminal, seminal work on occupational stress and health. And while I was a doctoral student, uh, worked with him and other researchers on a study of the stress of unemployment uh, on health. So I, I was very interested and I knew that there was a lot of good evidence that exposure to adverse circumstances mattered for health. And so I was very interested in thinking of how do we capture the stress of racism? And, and I had personally had experiences of racism that I knew stressed me out, that I knew had caused my my blood pressure to increase and, and, and didn't make me very happy. In fact, I'll I'll tell you about one right now. And even when I think back about it now, there's a certain level of anger that still builds up in me because it was so patently unfair. I was studying uh, in, in Michigan. A number of my friends and I, for the Thanksgiving weekend break, had driven to New York City. So this is five black guys in a car. Drove to New York City, spent a good Thanksgiving weekend. We're driving back. It was probably about one o'clock in the morning. We were close to where we were going to, but we were driving through a, a small white town on a on a fifty five mile an hour uh, freeway as as we were getting close to our final destination. We were stopped by the police officers. They said we were speeding. We Honestly, I can't be 100% sure, but we 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 don't think we were speeding. We would think it was 55. We might have been going 55, 56, 57. We were not going as fast as that. But the police officers came to the car and they said, they certainly asked uh, the driver for his uh, license and registration, but they requested the driver's licenses for everyone else in the car. And we muttered to ourselves, we don't have to do this. You know, I mean, if, if the, if the driver had violated the traffic laws, it's a reasonable thing to get his information. Why do you need the driver's licenses for the other four passengers in the car? And we, we were looking at each other and trying to decide what to do. We were less than an hour away from our destination. It had been a long drive. We were tired. We worried that if we said no, We could be detained, we could be taken to a police station, and we knew all of our records were clean, so we finally said, let's just do it, let's just do it, get it over with. And we handed over, all of us, our driver's licenses to the two police officers. They went back uh, to the car, it took a while. I think they were running our licenses, found nothing on any of us and came back and gave the driver a ticket and handed back our driver's licenses to us. The, the point was, e- even as I talk about it now, I still feel the, the increase in blood pressure for me because it for, was for me so patently unfair it wasn't necessary why was i being subjected to this so i knew and that's just one experience of of the stress of discrimination was real and the question was how do we measure it how do we measure it reliably and validly and 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 how could i develop measures that captures, this is, by the way, only one aspect of this of racism, but an important aspect of racism that affected the everyday lives of individuals and could, in fact, have negative consequences uh, uh, for their health.
2: Could I ask you one thing here before we go into sure. the, the questionnaire? Because I think it's important and it's really well summed up by that story. It would be easy, I think, for somebody to hear that story and hear a story in which nothing happened. Right? Pulled over. The cops took everybody's licenses, despite that not being, I think, normal practice. It has not happened to me when I've been a passenger in a car that has been pulled over. But the licenses got run and nothing happened. And so, what's the big deal? I think this is what it gets called in a term I have come to truly hate microaggressions. And you are seeing something here about what the buildup of these cumulatively over time does to the body. So before we get into how you measure them, can you talk about what made you certain or realize or what you want people to understand about why these have to be taken seriously and 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 measured cumulatively?
1: I think for me, the issue was it was patently unfair. That is not routine procedure. In fact, I wasn't even sure that it was legal without some underlying reason that a police officer making a routine traffic stop needs to get the the driver's licenses Of of everything, and it's it's just it's just one example. I'll I'll give you another example of what I I would consider patently unfair. I am a professor at Yale University. um, Back in the late 1980s, I leave my car at the end of the day. I'm leaving the office late. It's probably after six. It's it's dark. It's it's winter time, and I my car is parked in a a parking lot right next to my office building. And I go into my car and I turn on the ignition and I'm letting the car run just for uh, a few seconds. And, And the minute I do that, there are bright lights from a police officer who has pulled up his car next to me, and he has two bright lights shining on my face. I, I turned down the window, and I said to him, I am Professor Williams. Could you tell me why I'm being harassed? Because why? I, I'm just leaving work, going home. I have just walked into my car. Why are these bright lights in my face? And he told me that he was offended that I had used the word harass because he was just doing his job and pointed out that there was a a large object that was a a deep freeze that was linked to a cafeteria from one of the Yale buildings and that there had been recent thefts from that deep freeze and that he was supposed by his supervisor to uh, explore anything that was suspicious in the area. And I said, a black man leaving work is suspicious. I mean, why? I mean, I'm, I'm dressed with with a, with a jacket and tie. I'm just coming from work, going home. Why? Why am I suspicious that he has to investigate this and tell me that he was felt uh, very badly that that I was using the word harassed? And I said, I feel very badly that I am being. Harassed harass. But again, the issue was the unfairness. Um, the average person leaving work, going to your car in your parking lot, you, you are doing what you're supposed to do, not doing anything out of the ordinary. Why do you have to have this encounter? So part of the issue is these encounters of being treated badly or treated unfairly. And I think it's the unfairness, is a driving issue. When they accumulate, it, it creates a, a type of stress for you that, that leads to physiological arousal that, that can have negative health consequences.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what Exactly. That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/box. You can go to shopify.com/box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/box
0: Tell
2: me a bit about the questionnaires and 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 what they measure and how they differ from each other.
1: Sure, there are three main measures that I developed, and I would say I developed them by certainly have had my own repertoire of experiences, but I went back and read the research of scholars who had studied this distress, uh, not not so much a stress of discrimination, but had had provided qualitative descriptions of discrimination. Joe Fagan is an American sociologist, and he has done seminal work on that topic. And then Philomino Essert is a Dutch scholar who had studied discrimination in the Netherlands among Black immigrants from former Dutch territories in the Netherlands, and also had come to the United States and studied the discrimination among African-Americans in in, in California and so I read those and and really was looking at the the rich, qualitative descriptions, texture descriptions that people were given of the kinds of experiences they had. And based on that and my own experiences, tried to get language that I thought was really reflecting those experiences. So my first scale is what I call the major experiences of discrimination, that ask people questions like, at any time in your lifetime, have you ever been unfairly fired for unfair reasons, have you ever not been hired for a job? Have you ever been stopped, physically threatened or abused by the police? So it's, it's big experiences, the big events that, that might have happened to individuals. And there are, there are a number of questions like that that capture discrimination in work, in interaction with the police at school and so forth. And then there was a second questionnaire. It's called the everyday discrimination questionnaire. I, was trying to capture the day-to-day little indignities. In your day-to-day life, the questions go, how often are you treated with less courtesy than others? How often are you treated with less respect than others? How often do you receive poorer service than others in restaurants or stores? How often do people act as if they are afraid of you? So it's a lot of little things. Um, there are nine items to the everyday discrimination scale, but they capture those little indignities. And one of the striking things, uh, both measures matter for health. But I would say consistently in the U.S. and around the world, the scale has been used in multiple countries around the world. Today is the most widely, the everyday discrimination scale, the most widely used scale in studies of discrimination and health in in multiple contexts. And I have been surprised by the strength of the findings that persons who score high on these measures of discrimination report worse health, worse physical health, worse mental health. And when we talk about worse uh, physical health, studies show that persons who score high in everyday discrimination have higher levels of high blood pressure. Uh, Higher levels of everyday discrimination is associated with more rapid development of heart disease as measured in the arteries of the body over multiple years. They predict higher levels of inflammation. One study finds that women who report everyday discrimination while they are pregnant give birth to lower birth weight infants. So it's actually affecting not just the mother's mental health and physiological well-being, but it's affecting outcomes uh, for the child. Uh, There are couple studies that link everyday discrimination to higher levels of mortality. But it's even been linked to kind of very basic processes, like I mentioned inflammation, but there's a study linking discrimination to telomere length. Telomere length is a measure of biological aging at the level of the cells of your body. And to think that the accumulation of these negative experiences even affect how you function at, at some very basic biological levels. So I would say the findings have been quite striking, even for me, who developed the measure and expected them to predict health. The, the, the findings, and I haven't done all of these studies. The scale is very widely used. I've done some work with the scale, but I, I have been surprised by the, the strength of the finding and how powerful a risk factor these experiences are.
2: And what is your view of what the pathways are here. Is this picking up that people are getting worse medical care and that is why you have a lower birth weight baby? Do you think it's picking up things that are more related to these inflammation and and even telomere pathways that it's setting off a series of reactions in the body that over time are a kind of stress weight? What do you think is the causal chain?
1: Sure. I I think the pathways are very similar to other types of stressful life experiences. And that is, we know that the body has a remarkable capacity to respond to stressful experience. In fact, we we call it the the flight or fright response, that stress hormones kick into action when we experience or or anticipate or or suspect that that we are in danger. And these things provide, physiological arousal so that we could protect ourselves or that we could uh, run, escape from the danger. And I think those similar processes occur with with everyday discrimination, uh, both the the negative emotional reactions that lead and are associated with the physiological arousal. One of the things we have learned about stress is, is that while the acute response to stress is actually healthy for us, it, it it helps us survive and helps us handle danger. When that stress sore becomes chronic and ongoing, we have the physiological arousal with no decline. So that what we normally would like in a healthy stress response is that we our, our body is physiological aroused we are ready to deal with the danger. The danger goes away or or the danger is resolved. And then we come right back to normal and, and have a, a healthy level of physiological functioning. What research and there's a, a researcher, Bruce McEwen has, has written a lot about this and he calls it allostatic load, which is the physiological dysregulation that occurs and that is sustained when individuals remain on the chronic ongoing levels of stress. Stress begins, but like it never ends. And, and so you, you stay alert, you stay aroused. And my third measure of the stress of discrimination, try to capture some of that. What I found in the stories of individuals who had experienced discrimination is that they were affected not only by the actual experience of discrimination, but they actually prepared for the threat of discrimination often before they leave home. Let me give you a, a concrete example. I remember when I lived uh, in Connecticut uh, and was a professor at Yale that my my wife and I had a, a young couple uh, African American we 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 met with they were good friends of ours and the young man was was a successful businessman but he was still I would say at that time in his mid to late 30s and if his wife needed a gallon of milk and he needed to go to the supermarket to purchase a gallon of milk for his wife, he would go into his bedroom and put on a jacket and tie to go to the supermarket. Why? Because he did not want to be mistaken for a thug. He he wanted to maintain a certain appearance to minimize the chances that he might experience discrimination. And so the question is, what does that say when you are constantly monitoring your environment to to protect yourself from the threat of being discriminated against? And so I call that scale the heightened vigilance scale. And it asks individuals Right after we ask them the questions about everyday discrimination in your day-to-day lives, you know, you've just told us about all these experiences of discrimination. How often do you try to prepare for insults be- before you leave home? How often are you careful with your appearance to avoid being harassed? So it it, it really is, is capturing a litany of things that individuals do to minimize the chances that, that they will be a victim of discrimination. And what research shows that discrimination, actual exposure is adversely linked to health, but persons who also score high on the heightened vigilance scale, so they engage in, in a higher level of activity uh, to protect themselves from discrimination, the vigilance also adversely affects health independent of the actual exposure to discrimination. So both things matter, vigilance matters. And I would give you an example of a puzzle that the research on discrimination has solved, a a puzzle. Uh, And the puzzle was there have been studies of what we call ambulatory blood pressure. And an ambulatory blood pressure study, uh, typically young people are hooked up to a device that will take their blood pressure at random intervals during the day and night. And these studies have been done with young, healthy African-American and, and white people in multiple cities of the United States and found that during the day, there were no racial differences in blood pressure in these young, healthy African-American and, uh, African-Americans and whites. However, the researchers were struck by the fact that at night, both African-Americans and whites experienced a decline in blood pressure when they went to sleep. However, the decline was larger for whites than for African-Americans, so that African-Americans actually maintained a higher level of blood pressure even while they were sleeping. And I looked at the data, and I remember back in 2004, writing in a paper, could this reflect the possibility that, that the threats in our environment uh, potential threats of violence, potential threats of discrimination is so high that it's almost as if African Americans need to sleep with one eye open. You, you can never fully relax. You need to remain alert. You re- need to remain a vi- vigilant because you have to protect yourselves from potential stresses you would face. There are now three published studies that have looked at ambulatory, ambulatory blood pressure measured experiences of discrimination during the day and find that experiences of discrimination during the day predict this, uh, what researchers call non dipping or the smaller declines in blood pressure of African-Americans while they are sleeping.
2: I want to connect this back to the study you talked about, about health outcomes for white and African-American doctors, because this seems to me to be helpful in, in thinking about that, and, and recognizing we can't fully disentangle it, but my understanding is that this is getting to this idea of the weathering effect, that just over long periods of time, there is this buildup of, of allostatic stress. And if you are somebody who has come through a society that maybe was not built to make it easy for you to become a doctor, and have been managing all of these different environments where people were looking at you differently, thinking maybe you didn't deserve to be there, rapping on your window when you're trying to leave the university at night that you know you look and try to control for who became a doctor on the study and it seems like those two people are the same. And then the actual experience for those two people of becoming a doctor has done entirely different things to their bodies. For one person maybe it's been a personal narrative of kind of success and fulfilling the expectations that were already there for them. And for another, it has felt like a fight and you're constantly dealing with the worry that somebody is going to eject you from the place that you fought so hard to be in and that the background level of that is just going to create a very different outcome, not just in the body, but my understanding of a lot of the hypervigilance research is it will also create a different outcome in how you act socially, in how you see people, in what you do and do not perceive as a threat, such so that even just the experience of being in that world is more painful or more psychologically difficult for you. Is that fair, is your understanding of the research?
1: I think that is a part of it. I, I, I would acknowledge that there is individual response and not everyone responds exactly the same way. But the notion of weathering and the notion, other terms used in the literature, are uh, premature aging and accelerated aging, um, and, and what the research is suggesting, that if you look at African-Americans and whites at the same chronological age, so two, two people are both 50 years old that the African-American person at age 50 on average may be in terms of the wear and tear on his or her body physiologically may really be more like 60 years old, or or, or some studies find seven and a half year difference or a 10 year difference in in the profile of of risk factors for African-Americans and whites. And, And the notion of weathering is imagine a drop of water falling from the rooftop of the building in in which we are in, to the concrete sidewalk below. And if water drips today on the sidewalk, it's no big deal. But if there's a constant drip, drip, drip of water, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, eventually the sidewalk below becomes weathered. It becomes eroded as a result of the constant exposure to adversity. And what the weathering hypothesis says is that age not only captures your chronological age not only captures how long you have lived, but when you have been living in a bad environment, your age is capturing how long you've been exposed to bad environmental conditions and how physiologically compromised you have become as a result of those exposures. And it's, it's capturing the, these exposures are the psychosocial, the economic. As well as the physical chemical stresses, it could include pollution in the soil and in, in the water, in the air are uh, all, all part and parcel of the, the range uh, of stressful experiences that minorities face, face. And some of my own work has shown that for African Americans and, and U.S. born Latinos, not only do they have higher levels of the major stressors like work stress and financial stress and the death of a loved one and unemployment, but they also have the greater clustering of stressors. If you have one, you're more likely to have multiple of of those stressors. And all of these things accumulate and make a physiological wear and tear impact on the body. And that's what we mean by weathering or accelerated aging or premature aging.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: I want to begin to move our conversation because I think we've now set the frame for it really well to coronavirus and 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 some of the racially differential impacts it's having. But something that this is making me think about that might be useful for people to do is that if all this feels a little abstract, I mean, makes sense on some level, but but but, like, what does it feel like? Almost everybody I know who's been now trapped inside for six or seven weeks is feeling a constant gnawing sense of pretty deep anxiety, a vigilance, a worry when you walk out of the house that the people you see might be a threat to you. And certainly in my experience, The act of going to the grocery store, of like walking my son down the block and trying to pass people with six feet between us, being very careful about who has a mask on and who doesn't, that hybrid, it feels terrible. I feel bad all of the time. I'm not sleeping well, like the whole thing. This is not unique to me. And it sounds to me, and you can tell me if you think this is an overread, that what you're saying is that for a lot of people, in this case for African-Americans, that has been closer to the everyday experience. Not for everybody. I recognize what you said about not everybody having the same experience. But a lot of people, I think, are having the experience now of living in an ongoing hypervigilant state, maybe for the first time. But for a lot of people, that is simply an ongoing experience that before we even get into all the direct health effects, coronavirus is now layering on top of.
1: Yes, I, I think it's a, it's a good analogy. I don't think of myself um, as hypervigilant normally 24 hours a day, but part of it is I have also adapted <laughs> to, to the realities of my experience. And I'm always very aware of the fact that, that I am an African-American male. And I have to be careful in various contexts. And sometimes I'm in situations with my wife and I say, you go because they're not going to give you trouble as a female. She's, she's black too, but she's a female and, and very pleasant. And I said, you go instead of me because I just think that an African American male is a greater threat. And I'd certainly live my life very conscious. Very aware of that. Watch when I walk into an elevator, where I stand, and and try not to stand close, and try to to appear friendly, and so on. So it, it it is something that's constant, and I'm constantly aware of.
2: So a few weeks ago, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released, and this is preliminary nationwide data, but it showed that. of COVID-19 patients are African American, even though African Americans make up only about 13% of the population of the United States. What was your initial reaction or explanation when you heard those numbers?
1: So I would say the first thing I was not surprised in the least, I would have predicted that African Americans would be overrepresented in COVID because I have been studying uh, racial disparities in health uh, for (laughs) uh, some decades now. And the pattern of African Americans being overrepresented for health is true for virtually all of the major chronic diseases in the United States. So so COVID-19 is not creating health disparities that didn't exist. It is following a a pattern and I think shining a bright light on a pattern that exists. And then when I would think of why do these disparities exist, I, I would first think of the large differences in socioeconomic status and income and education and occupational status. And I I had to give a talk for COVID-19. And I I went and looked at the most recent data I could find on income. A 2019 report from the U.S. Census Bureau that looked at median household income in the United States by race. And I found that the average median uh, African-American household earned 59 cents for every dollar of income that white households earned. Uh, for Latinos, it was 73 cents to the dollar. What is striking about the 59 cents figure is that is identical to the black-white gap in income in 1978. 1978 was the peak year of the narrowing of the black-white gap in income as a result of the anti-poverty policies and the uh, civil rights policies of the sixties and seventies and, and they had, it had narrowed. It had been wider than that had narrowed to 59 cents. It's not that the rates have been stable over time. Throughout the decade of the 1980s, they fell from the 59 cents figure. Rigonomics was not good for the African American population. And it wasn't until 1994 that it got back up to the 59 cents figure. And it's been a penny up and down from that. Over time, going, going up to 62, coming to 60, 61, it's right in that ballpark. What's really important for me is that most of my students, and I've taught undergraduate students and graduate students, most of my students think that we have made more progress uh, in terms of achieving economic uh, equality in the United States than we actually have. And as bad as the income data are, they dramatically understate the racial differences in economic resources because income captures the flow of money into the household. It tells us nothing about the economic reserves that households have to cushion shortfalls of income. We get that from data on wealth that that are assets. So home equity is a major source, but stocks and bonds and savings and amount in our checking accounts and second properties are all the sources of wealth. And the latest report from the Federal Reserve Board, 2017 publication, data for 2016 in the United States, shows for every dollar of wealth white households have, black households have 10 cents and Latino households have 12 cents. So we are looking at groups that vary dramatically in economic resources. And, and that places them in many ways at higher risk uh, for COVID-19. I want to then
2: build on that data and that explanation because the data for fatalities is even more striking. And so I want to read some state numbers here. In Michigan, African-Americans represent 14% of the population. They are 33% of the confirmed infections and 40% of deaths. In Mississippi, African-Americans are 38% of the population, 56% of all infections, and 66% of deaths. In Georgia, 16% of the population, 31% of infections, and over 50% of deaths. And the list really does go on like this. So once the infection comes, why do you think uh, we're seeing such high death rates among African-Americans?
1: Well, the African-Americans are more vulnerable. Let let, let me talk at at two levels. First, what what does low economic status mean uh, in in terms of risk of exposure to the coronavirus? If if you're lower in income, it means you're more likely to have to continue to work outside of the home when uh, shelter-in-place directives are given. For low-wage, non-salaried workers who may have unpredictable, unstable hours, working from home is a luxury that they just don't have access to. Well, one of the other recommendations is social distancing. Well, that is not a viable option if you reside in urban high density, often multi-generational housing units, uh, which by the standard definitions of public health, we would say they are crowded housing units. And then low income and minority workers are also overrepresented among essential workers, those who are working in transit, those who are working in in the service industries, those who are are stocking the grocery stores. So there are many of the protective things that we would want individuals to do that persons of lower income uh, cannot do. And then testing. We have had early in the epidemic challenges in terms of access to test. And I don't think we have all the data are in yet, but there are at least some media reports uh, reflecting some analyses that, that suggested in multiple states, uh, one company looking at Bill & Data found that when you look at the persons showing up for testing, African-Americans and whites with the same symptoms were less likely to be given a corona test african americans less likely to get the test. and so we would worry about do do everyone even with the same risk profile have equal access and another point that's really important that goes back to the point i made before about weathering and and the higher levels of stress that african americans experience this has physiological consequences and one of the physiological consequences is the earlier onset of chronic disease. National data for the CDC tells us that African Americans get high blood pressure, hypertension at younger ages, get kidney disease at younger ages, are more likely to be obese, more likely to have heart disease at younger ages. There was one study of young African-Americans and whites. They were age 18 to 30 at baseline, and they were followed for multiple years. 20 years later, those young people, all 18 to 30 at baseline, 20 years later, African-Americans were 20 times more likely to have the early onset of heart disease, heart failure before the age of 50, 20 times more common, not twice as common, not five times as common, not 10 times as common, but 20 times more common. So it it just shows then if the COVID-19 is more likely to have devastating negative effects, greater severity and higher risk of, of death among persons who have chronic conditions, then this is the perfect storm. When you think of African-Americans, they are at risk in not being able to take the protective steps. They are at risk in terms of having higher levels of chronic disease based on their lifetime uh, of experience. They are at risk in possibly not getting the highest quality medical care.
2: This brings us in a way back to this very long running debate in American life over What is to blame for that? And I want to read you something here. So we mentioned Louisiana, and Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy talked about the obesity epidemic in the African American community, he's talked about some of these same comorbidities you're talking about, like hypertension and diabetes. And he said that's a big reason for the numbers we've been talking about so far. But then he was asked, do these reflect, uh, in quotes here, years of systemic racism? And Cassidy responded that's rhetoric, and it may be. But as a physician, because he is a former physician, I'm looking at science. Now, you've actually done the science on this. I'm curious what you would say to Senator Cassidy.
1: I would love to explain to Senator Cassidy how racism works. And many times when we think of racism, we think of those uh, uh, negative, vicious, Hate-filled attacks that we we sometimes see in documentaries that 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 are a part uh, a large part of America's past. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we, we we see them emerging again. And racism operates through multiple mechanisms. And we've talked about the stress of discrimination. We've talked about the potential for unfair treatment in medical care. And what I really haven't emphasized, though, is what I like to call the institutional mechanisms of racism. And I talk about residential segregation as the secret source that drives racial inequality in America, that determines access to opportunity on a large scale, determines the quality of neighborhood environments individuals have access to, they are allowed to live in, and place. in public health today, Many of my colleagues say that in the United States, your zip code is a stronger predictor of how long and how well you will live than your genetic code, referring to the fact that health and poor health varies dramatically by place, by neighborhood, and so the, the context of individuals' lives and their the residential location dramatically shapes access to opportunity in the United States. And importantly, This did not just happen. It's not an act of God. It's not a random event. It reflects the successful implementation of social policies. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was concern on the part of of many white leaders that it was necessary to protect the white community from proximity to African Americans and, and multiple mechanisms were used to do that, um, including, uh, government policies and, uh, the, the practices of banks of redlining certain areas with, with higher, uh, black, uh, population as unsafe places for, for banks to risk mortgages. And although segregation has been Illegal is no longer mandated by law since the 1960s. The structure of segregation put in place has remained the same. And there, there is unequal access to opportunity in American life. I I like to talk about a study done by one of my colleagues at Harvard, uh, an economist, David Cutler, using very rigorous econometric methods. He looked at a national sample of young African-Americans and whites making it in the labor force and using his fancy statistical uh, procedures, he was able to show that if you could statistically eliminate residential segregation in the United States, you would completely erase black white differences in income, in education and in unemployment and reduce black-white differences in single motherhood by two-thirds. All of these stark social and economic differences are driven by opportunity at the neighborhood level. And so a, a lot of times we don't think of the institutional upstream mechanisms of racism that still profoundly shape access to opportunity. And that's where I go back to the choices people uh, can make are linked to the choices they have. And some persons in this country systematically are living in places, whether that be urban neighborhoods or Native American reservations where they do not have access to opportunity.
2: That's a super fascinating study. And if you will send it to me, I'll make sure it's in show notes so people can download it and and, and take a look at it. Um, I want to ask about this issue from the other side, too, which is there's an argument you often hear, um, which is that, yes, there is a, a kind of omnipresent truth of systemic and, and interpersonal racism. But also there's a question simply of what you are going to do right now. And you can't solve that problem right now. so So you have to just change your behavior and this came a bit to a head on april 10th when the u.s surgeon general jerome adams who is himself african-american said that communities of color are not helpless in the face of the virus and that they need to observe social distancing proper hygiene they should quote avoid alcohol tobacco and drugs and that caused a, a bit of a firestorm of people um, feeling like that was blaming versus people feeling that was simply good advice for anybody i'm curious how you reacted to it
1: I have met the Surgeon General. I I think his heart is in the right place. I think that all of us need to take those steps that we can take to protect ourselves. Uh, I, I do think it's, it's important, for example, in, in the face of the virus, I'm very conscious of it that, that I get my, my adequate sleep because if, if I am sleep deprived, that adversely impacts my immune functioning. So, so on the one hand, good health behaviors uh, are important. And it is also true that not everyone is fully aware of all of the facts. At the same time, I, I think we we all have to be careful because the statements we make are, are not made in a vacuum. We are living in an environment where there is a, a tendency to blame populations of color, to blame African-Americans and Native Americans and Latinos for the health problems they face and, and not pay attention to the social policies and the social systems that have created them. So so I I do think on the one hand, yes, we need to make the healthy choices, but we need to think of what we can do as a society to reduce the barriers and to create the opportunities to ensure that everyone has access to the healthy choices in the first place.
2: So in this conversation, we've talked about both the ways in which the African-American community is more directly exposed to coronavirus, both because of making up a disproportionate number of essential workers and living in more crowded housing conditions and, and, and urban areas and more physically vulnerable to the virus. And I've been struck how that's coming out in the actual polling. So there was just a New York Times poll of Americans who oppose lockdowns, right, who want to open back up. And just over 5% were non-white workers who have personally lost a job in the crisis. And just under 70% were white workers who had not lost a job. And it struck me as speaking to how difficult and dangerous the moral and political calculus is here, where... A lot of the people demanding we open up right now are demanding we open up when it's going to potentially be or likely be a community that they do not see themselves in, that is going to be most vulnerable to the consequences of it. And it strikes me as a kind of political decision, even if you take seriously the case that we need to begin opening up for economic and other reasons, this question of who gets to make this decision on whose behalf and how communities are represented in it, strikes me as really important and morally fraught.
1: Yeah, I I, I do think it's a a real challenge. I I do think that on the one hand, it is good that there is a lot of, of media coverage of the, the fact that African Americans and, and in some places, Latinos, I've seen a, a few studies looking at, um, uh, Native Americans. I spoke with one researcher who does work on Pacific Islanders in, in the, primarily in the Western, uh, uh, part of the United States. They tend to have, have very high rates as well in the state of California. So, so that there are some groups that are disproportionately impacted. I think that's good because public opinion surveys tell us that most adult Americans are unaware that racial disparities even exist. So we'll never be mobilized to solve a problem if we don't know it exists. So the awareness raising is is important. However, many persons who then become aware, their knee-jerk reaction is to blame the victim, is to conclude that It's the fault of those people. It's the fault of those communities why they have the problem. And that's particularly important because if it's the victim's fault, then as a society, we don't have any responsibility. We, we, we don't have any obligation if people are bringing crises upon themselves. And, and there's national public opinion data that, that causes me to to take pause. Um, There was a, a national survey done back in 2015 but it found that that 60% of whites in the United States believed, and 68% of working class whites believed that hard work alone was not a guarantee of success. But yet 50% of whites believe that blacks would solve all the inequities that existed, economic and, and other inequities that existed, if only they worked harder. That the solution to the disparities that Black face in society was simply working harder, even though they generally believe that hard work alone didn't guarantee success. And so what I'm saying is just providing the information of the higher rates of disease and death for African-Americans without helping individuals to understand why they have these higher rates of the disease and death so that they have a full understanding of what the drivers of these differences are, it can lead only to even more entrenched attitudes being opposed to policies that could address some of the underlying drivers of these differences. And and I want to tell you what what drives me here. W.E.B. Du Bois was an influential social scientist of the the late 19th and early 20th century. He published a book in 1899 called uh, The Philadelphia Negro, and that looked at the the lives of African Americans then in, in Philadelphia. He has a chapter on Negro health. And as he comes near the end of that chapter on Negro health, Du Bois says, that the most difficult social problem in the matter of Negro health is the peculiar attitude of the nation toward the well-being of the race. And he continued, there have been few other cases in the history of civilized peoples where human suffering has been viewed with such peculiar indifference. And that peculiar indifference Du Bois is talking about is the fact that the bottom line is Americans don't care. We don't care that, that Black people are dying disproportionately. We don't care that there are burdens that they bear that, that others don't have to. And scholars today find considerable evidence that Du Bois was correct. Uh, They don't call it a peculiar indifference. We call it the empathy gap. And what research shows in the United States, and it's not just an American phenomenon, it's been found on every continent. And that is that as humans, we tend to have more empathy. We feel the pain for what happens to someone from our group as opposed to someone from a different group. So in in the US where race is central, the research shows that whites have greater empathy for the problems that whites face than for the problems that African-Americans face. And part of that is driven by not feeling the pain, not feeling the, the suffering, not emotionally connecting with it, which in part can be driven by your deeply embedded cultural understanding of why does this, this group suffering in the first place? So raising awareness, being able to tell the story of the challenges that African Americans and other persons of color face in ways that emotionally connect with the general public, that helps the general public to, to empathize and to understand and to appreciate the challenge that is necessary to get the kind of political will that is needed so that we can make steps in the right direction. We can make the investments that are necessary so when the next pandemic comes, we don't see the same negative outcomes that we witness in today.
2: So first, I want to say I appreciate you being here today and, and creating a much better framework and, and a sense of that understanding. But I think to begin to bring this to a close, I want to ask you to follow up on the last thing you said there, which is, let's say it did generate the political will. Let's say people did look around and realize that, among other things, African-American workers are protecting the rest of the country, making it possible for so many other people to stay at home and and, and be safer, and that there is something both wrong in that and a debt that needs to be paid back. If there was that political will, what are some of the policies or the decisions or the investments that you think, given your research, would really begin to make progress on this? What can society actually do to ameliorate these inequities?
1: The the good news is there's, there's a lot that we can do, and there's a lot of good science we have that points us to potential solutions and we know from from a strictly scientific uh, basis that these solutions would work, and we know that many of them would actually save society money. So what exactly am I talking about? The first area I would emphasize is the area of early childhood development. I'll give you a concrete example. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, there's a program called the Abyssidarian Project at which poor kids, 80 percent of them African-American, were enrolled in this early childhood development center when they were born. And they receive good care. Uh, They receive good intellectual stimulation. They receive access to medical care, uh, good nutrition. The program is birth through five. After five, they are free from that program. And they go to school as all other kids do. What was nicely done in this in this study was they randomized, by the flip of a coin, half of the eligible kids to get the program and the other half are control group. They have now been followed through to the mid, mid-30s. And what we find by the mid-30s, those who got the program, higher education, better health behaviors, better mental health, better occupational uh, opportunities and success and importantly, lower levels of cardiometabolic disease, lower levels of hypertension of, and, and blood pressure, lower levels of obesity, lower level of risk factors for heart disease, given a program that they receive from birth through five. There was a similar study like this done in Ypsilanti, Michigan, many years ago, where the kids who got the program from a African-American public housing project were followed for 40 years. And again, the same pattern. Those who got the program compared to a control group, less involvement with the juvenile justice system over their lifetime, less involvement with the social service system over their lifetime. Those who got the program higher education, higher income, more likely to be married, more likely to own their homes. And For every dollar invested in the program, there's a $17 return to society. So here are programs that work to provide opportunity to improve health, and that literally save our society money. So it, it's an example of the kind of programs. And by the way, there are states and cities that are beginning to do in special investments in early childhood development programs. So that's, that's one thing that should be done. The, the second thing that should be done, I talked about segregation and its negative effects. There's nothing inherently negative about living next to persons of your own race. The the problem of segregation is not segregation per se, but it's the clustering of adversity and the systematic disinvestment in those communities so that I like to talk about the fact that we need a Marshall Plan. Um, the Marshall Plan was a plan for our listeners that, that helped to rebuild Europe after the Second World War. We need a Marshall Plan for disadvantaged communities in the United States. When we could create the opportunity structures in terms of access to good education and good skills and, and good housing and good neighborhood environments and good jobs that will allow individuals to be productive members of society, that will benefit all of us I like to tell people that come with me to 2060, where for every person receiving uh, Social Security, there'll be only two persons paying into it. One of those two people will be Black or Latino. Those kids are in kindergarten now. And everything we can do now to ensure that those uh, children of color, receive the best educational preparation, get the best skills so they can be productive members of the labor force, earning good income, paying into the social security system, um, where the majority of people then will be white. That is in our collective best interest. So those investments will pay off for the society since we will have more productive workers, we'll have a uh, a, a stronger economy when we have invested in the human capital that we have.
2: And then let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I think books on segregation are so important because it's, it's so powerful that many people don't recognize it. And they're they're good examples. Um, Douglas Massey and Nancy Denton have a book entitled American Apartheid. Uh, John Sell was a historian at Duke University, wrote a book on the origins of segregation in the U.S., South and South Africa called The Highest Stage of White Supremacy. And uh, I think Rustin is the author of another recent book, and I'm, I'm, I'm blocking on it. It's, it's something by law, but it's about segregation and looking more at, at the legal aspects of it. So those, those would be good books I, I would recommend. Uh, Tanishi Coates also has a, a wonderful book that I think can give enormous insight. I use it with my students to understand in racial inequality in, in the United States. But I, I think getting a, a sense of the, the role of segregation and its power It's pivotal to to understanding where we are.
2: David Williams, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been great talking with you today.
2: Thank you to Dr. Williams for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing The Ezra Klein Show, as a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes
3: doing business has never felt harder.